The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the show, brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan, joined by Michael Normanton, also from The Square Ball, and Phil Hay from The Athletic. Uh, we've returned on the show uh, Monday lunchtime as it is now, Phil. Probably worth rewinding to just before the weekend, just to explain why we didn't do the show on Friday, um, for reasons beyond the obvious. Uh, the plan had been to record on Friday as usual, um, post Jesse Marsh's press conference, which was planned for half past one in the afternoon. We would have sat down around about half past two, three o'clock. It was quite obvious, I think, from Thursday night onwards that there were going to have to be big decisions made about the schedule. So logistically, it was difficult to record a podcast minus a press conference and minus a game at the weekend. But The Athletic took the decision overnight on Thursday to cease publication for a a limited period of time, um, just out of respect. And the same was done with podcasts and videos as well. And all in all, it was felt that um, last Friday was not really the time to spend an hour talking about football, given that uh, there were bigger things going on in the world. And also, there wasn't a huge amount of football to talk about. The other side of that is that it's impossible to strike the right tone as well, isn't it? Like, if we'd have gone ahead and recorded, somebody would have said, that's not respectful enough. Uh, some people say, well, why have you cancelled it? That's been too respectful. You know, you never quite, can quite get it right because there's such a broad spectrum of opinions on the reaction to something like the Queen dying. And broad spectrum of opinions on the Queen and the Royal Family as well. There'll be, I said there, the bigger things going on in the world than football. There'll be some people who would disagree with that. And I think it was very much a matter of opinion last week. I don't think you could argue with anybody who said that they felt it was the right decision to cancel the games out of respect. I don't think you could argue either with people who felt that the game should have gone ahead. My personal view was that it was a good opportunity and good occasion for a lot of people to come together. I think you could have had some pretty big and significant tributes to the Queen over the weekend. But the decision was taken. I I think the thing about last week was that the decision was taken in the context of respect. You know, the the idea of respect as the Premier League saw it so soon after the, the Queen's death. This week and what happens with the fixtures is going to be far more about logistics and to cut to the chase, far more about policing numbers and the ability of clubs and and individual police forces to manage games safely and to provide the sort of security that you would need around fixtures like, for example, Manchester United versus Leeds, which is a very high category risk fixture anyway in in the fixture list and is going to need some consideration and is very much being discussed at the moment. So I think a, a different perspective on the games this week to last week. Um, but I totally understand people who think that the game should have gone ahead over the weekend. Was there any explanation as to why football specifically chose to shut down and a lot of other sports didn't? Because we saw the cricket, for example, they cancelled one day's play against South Africa, England versus South Africa, and then resumed the day after, paid their respects and, and got on with it. Why wasn't that the case with football, do we know? Not enough of an explanation for that, I don't think. It was strange watching on Friday, the the first meeting or the first discussion with was with um, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, um, the government, who essentially said to the Premier League, look, our, our advice would be that the games are called off, um, but you don't actually have to do that. And when the advice was published, it did say that um, associations, leagues um, in different sports who wanted to go ahead could do, um, that there were ways in which they could pay tributes via black armbands or minute silence or minutes applause or whatever they chose to do. And the DCMS meeting was with all sports. It wasn't just with football, but that was followed by a Premier League meeting um, at 11am, which I think was scheduled anyway. I think there was due to be a Premier League meeting at that point um, and the timing was very helpful to make the decision. I think there would have had to have been an emergency meeting called anyway um, to discuss that obviously before the fixtures at the weekend. So you had the, I guess, the juxtaposition of various sports, cricket, rugby, like you mentioned, um, rugby league, the first to to kind of stick its neck out and say the games will go ahead this weekend. You know, we'll we'll proceed. There were 
kind of brief cancellations in rugby union. Um, the St. Ledger was moved to the weekend, but racing did kind of continue in some form. But football, it was a kind of blanket cancellation and not just in England either. And the same happened in Scotland and, and in Northern Ireland. And it did seem to be a very different way of thinking to, to other sports. And it was hard to understand why. It didn't seem that policing was actually a particularly key issue at the back end of last week, or that certainly wasn't transmitted to us, that that was behind it. As I say, I think that is far more of a concern this week and will we'll be much more part of the discussions that are taking place about the games that are going to happen as this week goes on. But no, it did seem as if football was an outlier last week that they'd chosen to cancel everything out of respect. Um, an awful lot of sports had decided that, that they would carry on. And it was a, a kind of clash of ideas. And I guess without a, a clear explanation from uh, the organising bodies, speculation tends to then fill the void, doesn't it? Because one of the um, the ideas that has been put forward is that football specifically was cancelled because the Queen was a patron of the FA uh, as opposed to other sports. Do we know if there's anything in that? I don't know if there's anything in that. Um, I, I suspect that those sort of decision or those sort of um, factors will have come into the thinking and, and will have been considered and, and have been part of the conversation. And, and actually, you know, the FA went an awful lot further than just um, instructing or advising the, the Premier League and the EFL to, to pull their fixtures. You'll have seen various people tweeting over the weekend about the fact that kids' games and kids' training sessions were also cancelled or postponed out of, as the FA put it, a, a mark of respect. I mean, there, there'll be plenty of people who, who will say that in the grand scheme, it's not a big deal, is it, to lose football fixtures over, over one weekend. But it did seem kind of contrary to, I guess, the, the what you knew of the Queen and, and her her kind of understanding or appreciation of, of what people sort of enjoyed in life and also the consideration about what people had spent and what people had done to organise to, to be at these games over the weekend. There's one thing saying it's only money, but it's only money at a time when people are short of cash and, and things are, are very tight across society as a whole. So I, I think there's probably another way in which this could have been handled. I, I wonder with hindsight whether they will look back and think that actually the game should have been allowed to go ahead. And, I, and to go back to logistics... It seems to me that the Premier League now are going to have a job on their hands to fit these spare games in because as it stands at the moment, Leeds potentially are going to go for a month or 29 games without a fixture if the, the Manchester United game on Sunday is also pulled. And given that you've got the World Cup coming up, which is the best part of a month and a half off, it's certainly not ideal in a sporting context. And yes, there are bigger things in life than sport and some people would definitely say that this is bigger than sport. But from an organisational point of view, this is not what Leeds would have wanted at all. The FA Cup fourth round weekend should be free if we uh, if we maintain <laughs> usual Leeds United traditions. Well, yeah. well, they have spoken about actually making a, a go of the Cups uh, this season, so perhaps not. I don't know whether or not they'll try to get these any cancelled games, postponed games in before the World Cup, given that there is this big break coming up um, and then it'll be right back into it um, from Boxing Day onwards. I mean, the, the Premier League schedule is such that it does leave gaps in midweek for a lot of clubs. The clubs who it's most problematic for are those that are in the Champions League or the Europa League and particularly from February onwards have a lot of midweek fixtures that they have to deal with and have to accommodate. Um, and you've seen that in previous seasons with COVID that it's not as easy as just saying, oh, well, we'll play this further down the line. It can create an, an awful lot of congestion. Leeds are probably less likely to suffer from congestion than um, a lot of other clubs because they don't have European football. But to go back to what I said, you know that, that would mean a month off during October. It would mean a month off month and a half off November and December. And I don't think that's conducive to a season that flows and not necessarily conducive to good form either. 
I guess ultimately it all leads back to conversations about ideas on the monarchy, doesn't it? And um, the idea of having a, a period of mourning imposed on you. And I appreciate that people listening, everybody will have their own opinions on that, whether it should be the case or or shouldn't be the case. And ultimately ideas that, that were conceived well before the modern era. And it's it's a once in a lifetime occurrences this like we've never never known anything like this during our lifetimes have we it is I, i've been trying to say this to my girls who've been i don't know whether it'd be fair to say they've been indifferent about it but it, i think it's it's washed over them a little bit they've been aware of what's happened and they've taken note of what's happened they have noticed what's been going on they've they've been aware of of the change and and the queen's death but i have said to them a couple of times you know nobody's seen this in 70 years you know what's going on at the moment none of us have ever seen and and you know, the majority of people in the UK haven't either. So yeah, it you, you can't say that anybody on either side of this is wrong. You know, people just have their personal views on, on what should happen. And clearly the personal view of the Premier League and the EFL was that the game should be suspended. As I say, I, I think had they not done that, um, I don't think it would have been the wrong decision either. But to coin a Brian McDermott phrase, it is what it is. How was that decision reached then? Was it the was it the clubs themselves who kind of all came together to agree this? Or was it was it put to them that it should be cancelled for the weekend one of the members of the um, DCMS committee Julian Knight told TalkSport that they had pretty much transmitted to the Premier League that their advice would be to cancel the games but you know as quite often happens with government the decision was left to the individual sporting bodies so rather than anybody in government taking complete responsibility for the decision and saying this is what has to happen this is what you should do this is protocol the different bodies were told you decide, which is why you saw rugby league plough on and rugby union and, and horse racing and, and everything else and why football was able to make a completely di- different decision to just about everybody else going. Um, so yeah, it, it was placed on the placed on the authorities, 100%. And the clubs had very little influence on that at all. It was, it was entirely a, a decision that came from the top. Do you think football is slightly the victim of its own success in this and that it's more noticeable if there's a weekend of Premier League games going on, whereas cricket and rugby games they pretty much happen in the background for, for a large part that was actually going to be my next question to you both it was going to be about the Premier League and the fact that it's a global product isn't it these days you forget don't you sitting here in Leeds as we are you know quarter of a mile from the ground that it's the eyes of the world that watch the Premier League every weekend and you do wonder what the reaction might have been had they continued don't you think maybe that's that's part of the thinking I think it's fair to say as well that these days people are far more um, aware of sensitivities and, and far more aware of the consequences of be, being seen to be insensitive. I, I don't know, I, I, this is purely me speculating, but I don't know as well whether or not there would have been any concern about various minutes silence being disrupted um, because clearly there's some people out there who, who don't like the monarchy, who wouldn't have wanted this to be a, a quiet weekend, wouldn't have wanted to particularly pay respects in the way that a lot of other people did. And again, it's a kind of free country in, in that sense. Uh, so were they concerned about that? Did they just think that people looking in might feel as if the country was carrying on um, regardless? I don't know, really. I, I think Michael is right that the Premier League has a, a reach and kind of global perception that just does not apply to other sports and no sport in the country, certainly in the UK, that the world is so aware of as Premier League football. So I guess the pressure on that decision was more intense than, say, the decision to carry on with the, the Rugby League schedule. But it, it you know, the, the opinion was very divided about it. There are a lot of people, I, I followed followed Twitter mainly for this, but um, there are a lot of people who are very unhappy about the decision to pull all the games. It's funny, isn't it? You said to me in the um, in the car park before we came in, Phil, it doesn't feel like a match day. And I had to kind of check myself and realise that, oh God, it is, yeah, it's, it was supposed to be tonight, wasn't it? The game? It, it was. People have, have asked me 
you know, given that um, the EFL this morning have announced that fixtures can carry on and everything is starting up again, why didn't um, why wasn't the the Leeds Forest game allowed to go ahead? I think the answer to that is because it fell uh, it fell into the category of this weekend schedule. You know, it wasn't separate to that, and and I think the Premier League felt that in postponing everything else, this had to be, um, the same sort of rules had to be applied to this. But it is odd because we should be gearing up for what would have been a pretty big game at Ellen Road, and, and as it is, it's a quiet night for us all. What would you have done with it? Obviously, just in your own personal opinion, because I'm, I'm in two minds. I understand on the one hand why they did it uh, as a mark of respect. On the other hand, it does feel like we've been denied the opportunity to pay respects in a, in the way that we do because we've seen, haven't we, in recent years that like the minute silence has been kind of supplanted by a minute's applause because it then gets round anybody who wants to be disruptive about it. But for these particular occasions, they're really the, well, sort of the biggest occasions like this. It tends to be a minute's silence. And by and large, I think they are observed pretty impeccably. Well, for starters, I thought there would have been some fixed protocol for this. And I thought there would have been more guidance than simply you decide what you want to do with your individual sport. When the Queen's death was first announced, my uh, my gut feeling was that the games would be postponed. And I think most people probably thought the same. It was just as time went on and Thursday became Friday and you realised that the, the discussion was more a case of you do what you think is best from the government as opposed to this is the edict that's coming down and this is what you should do. More and more you start to think, well, what is the harm in these games going ahead? Provided that the police can adequately police them um, and do have the resources they need, which I think in most areas of the country they certainly would have done, um, particularly because the, uh, the Queen's body has been up north um, as opposed to, to down in London. It seemed to me that, that the games could have gone ahead. And I think the overwhelming view seemed to be that they probably should have done. But I, I feel like it's not necessarily a discussion that needs to be had to death because there'll be plenty of people out there who think it's been the right thing to do. And I can't argue with them. You know, I just see it slightly differently. One of the other reasons why we cancelled the Friday show as well was we'd prepared a show to talk about the Andy's Man Club article that you ran over the weekend, Phil. It ran on Saturday, which was World Suicide Prevention Day as well. And I think anybody listening will appreciate it would have been not only impossible to strike the right tone in light of the Queen's death, but talking about that on Saturday as well. Because we did the charity walk, which we mentioned before in passing on the show, where we did 92 miles, North Wales, back to Ellen Road, Gary Speed's first playing field, back to Ellen Road. A huge occasion, raised a huge amount of money for Andy's Man Club, over £60,000. And you actually followed this up by going down to one of the Andy's Man Club sessions, didn't you, in Castleford? And and just had a, had a sniff about to find out what it was all about, to get like you know boots on the ground, if you like. Well, I'm quite embarrassed to say that before the walk, I didn't know a huge amount about Andy's Man Club. I knew of it, and I knew um, roughly what it did. And my wife works in probation, and she's said to me for years going back that she was aware of Andy's Man Club and, and always saw it as a really valuable resource um, for the people who passed through the probation service. She always said, you know, that there isn't an awful lot out there like that that's as easily accessible um, as AMC is. And the other thing that, that struck me was on the walk, and there were a, a good sort of hundred of us who did that walk. There were a lot of um, a lot of men on there who do use AMC and and do go to the meetings, and and it kind of intrigued me to find out what they do, you know, what it involves, how it works, and and how effective it is because it's clearly growing. It's a network of branches across the country, and I think they're they were due to have the Cambridge branch opening at some point this month, which will take them up to one hundred and nine in total. And it's it it started with. Um, the death of um, Andrew Roberts, a man who lived in Halifax, um, the brother-in-law of Luke Ambler, who many people remember as a, um, a very good rugby league player, played at, at Leeds Rhinos um, for a time. And a classic story, really, of somebody who, who took their own life with very little warning at all and, and with 
kind of absolutely no acknowledgement at all amongst his friends or family that that might be coming. Nobody realised, nobody knew that he was having problems, nobody knew that he was he was under pressure. So his mother Elaine and, and Luke Ambler set up um, AMC back in 2016 and it's the growth of it has been quite organic. Um, people started going to the Halifax Club, which was the first one, uh, and little by little started to say, you know, why isn't the one in Leeds? So one would form in Leeds. Um, I went down to the Castleford branch and spoke to a guy there, a Leeds fan called Andy Wilson, uh, who went to the Halifax branch, um, also went to Leeds, and because he is from Castleford, started to say the same thing. Why isn't the one in Castleford? So they set one up, which um, takes place at the jungle, um, Castleford Tigers Stadium. And I think it is doing the sort of service that, you know, as, as my wife sort of said to me, isn't really out there in, in too many quarters. It's filling a, a massive void for men who are either suffering from suicidal thoughts or mental health pressures, other pressures, anxiety in their life. And it was remarkable really to sit in on the meeting and to see what they were doing and, and how they were supporting the people who turned up. There's a common story with this, which is that, or a common theme, which is that absolutely everybody wants to go to these meetings. Everybody who's there wants to go to them. But at the same time, nobody wants to go to them. Um, I was speaking to one of the facilitators down at Castleford, George, who said, you know, he drove to the doors five times without ever going in because the, I think the most difficult part of it is going into the room, sitting down with other people, talking about um, what's happened to you, listening to stories from other people and understanding what the what the problem is. But because they've all experienced hardship, you know, Andy Wilson um, tried to take his own life about four or five years ago. Um, I met a guy called Alex who's suffering from PTSD. He'd served with the forces over in Afghanistan a lad called Ricky who had suffered sexual abuse when he was when he was young and had not been able to speak about it at all until the age of, of 23. And one of the amazing things about Ricky is that whenever anybody new turns up for the Castleford meeting, he starts it by saying, I'm Ricky. And he explains to them all about how he was abused as a child, about how you know that affected him, um, about how he confided in his, part, his ex-partner. She was the only person who knew for a long time. And when they split up, he found it very, very difficult to cope. And again, tried to take his own life more than once, he said. And it, that that's an incredibly difficult thing to have to do and to say week after week. But the effect of it is that everybody sitting in the meeting realises straight away that you are dealing with people who actually have, you know, serious problems of their own. And I think it makes it very easy to relate to. And rather than it just being a case of sitting there saying, you know, I'm, I'm struggling a bit, I've got this, that and the other. And, and they always say, Struggling a bit is perfectly fine reason to be turning up. You know, you don't have to be having major problems in your life. It's just a, a case of finding people to support you. But I think being able to sit down and listen to somebody like Ricky saying that makes you realise immediately that you're going to get the support you need and that the people there will be empathetic with you and will properly understand you. Yeah, just to read out what Andy's Man Club is, if you're not familiar with the concept, from their website, it says, Andy's Man Club are a men's suicide prevention charity offering free-to-attend peer-to-peer support groups across the UK and online. We want to end the stigma surrounding men's mental health and help men through the power of conversation. So they meet Mondays across the country, seven till nine, two hours. And as you were saying there, Phil, should stress, if you want to hear a bit more as well, we, we spoke to Andy Greenway as well. Who, yeah, who's he's a great guy. Andy. One of the local uh, guys who works for Andy's Man Club. We've did a podcast over on the Square Ball feed, which you can find there, um, where he explains, Andy, what, what the whole concept of it is. But you can go along and not say anything if you don't want to. If you just want to be in the room around people, that's fine. You're not forced to uh, identify yourself or talk about your problems uh, or anything like that. You can just be there if you want to. 
And as he said, it's, it's a great place even if you just want a free cup of tea and a bit of company and a biscuit on a Monday evening. You can do. If it's just to get out of the house, anything. And they all said that turning up there is kind of their anchor for the week. You know, if they've had a bad week, they have it in their head that they've got the Monday night meeting coming and it's almost a chance for them to reset or, or get themselves going. One of the other facilitators, Carl, he, he suffered quite a serious downturn in, in mood and well-being after um, he and his partner suffered a miscarriage. And he was saying, you know, I'll have a difficult week or a bad weekend. I'll go in on a Monday to these meetings and I'll come back out bouncing for Tuesday. And it is like the, the reset button. And also they find that, you know, they, they make really good friends at these meetings. They, they, they go there kind of naturally worried and apprehensive about what they're going to encounter. But then, as Ricky described it, it, it becomes a bit of a brotherhood where you want to go, want to go um, every week. And you're right. I mean, it's it's 100% non-judgmental. You're not required to say anything when you turn up. They do this quite clever thing where you have a, a big meeting to start with and then you split into breakout groups, um, smaller meetings where you chat amongst yourselves and they, they ask you to answer um, individual questions. So, you know, what's been good this week? What's been bad this week? That sort of thing. The, the, the other questions vary up as well. Week That's week, it. They, yeah, they yeah. mix it up. And some of them are just a, a good bit of fun, you know, so you can have a, have a bit of a laugh. And they, they pass around this black football that you can fiddle with and you can toss and do whatever with while you're talking just to kind of help you relax a little bit more and I, I thought it was quite striking the number of people who had clearly been thinking about it for a long time and had turned up and you know looked looked quite sort of physically scared as, as you would do because you don't know what it's going to be like getting into that environment but you could see for so many of them how it was making a difference for them um it struck me as an absolutely fantastic resource um and you know in, in a lot of cases voluntary like the five facilitators who i met in castleford not getting paid for this at all. It's just voluntary work. And, you know, they always repeat the, the statistic that if you're a man between 18 and 50 years old, then suicide is the most likely thing to, to kill you. And that's really, really appalling statistic that probably not enough is, has been done about at any stage. But this is this is definitely one way of fighting it. Something you touched on there, Phil, actually, the idea that your problem's not big enough and they want to stress that it is. Because I think that's one of the, the things that affects people who are having mental health issues uh, is that you always think that it's kind of that you've completely you feel like you've completely gone off the road I'm talking from experience here because I, I had my own issues with it mm. I referred myself yeah. by the NHS for um, for therapy which was brilliant by the way you think your problem's not big enough to deal with and it is it always is and then getting the help or reaching out to a group like Andy's Man Club often is the hardest step and once you've taken that step and you break down that and you clear that initial hurdle that barrier it's absolutely fine and you'll feel hopefully a lot better for doing so. Yeah, they, they always kind of say that everybody's problems are different rather than graded. You know, it's not a case of your problems are more severe, although clearly there are some people who are more in need of kind of urgent support um, than others. But Carl, one of the facilitators, said that was the reason why he put it off for so long. He he just felt kind of angry or you know felt his mood deteriorating to, to a point where he felt like he kind of needed some help with it. But at the same time, he wasn't having suicidal thoughts and he was thinking to himself, am, am I, I mean, I certainly felt like that a little bit sitting through it. I was kind of like, I, I don't want to be seen to be rubbernecking here because like, I mean, I, I started doing mindfulness um, about three or four weeks ago because I have a real, I'm really bad at being present, um, particularly with my kids, you know, I'd, easily distracted by work and the phone and everything else. So I was going to say I, WhatsApp is an incredible dis distraction when, you, when you're dealing with football and stuff like this, isn't it? That's all, it. Like, all the time, you know, yeah. the job's really busy and it's a great job, so I'm not moaning about it at all, but there is a lot of pressure in it from time to time. And I can find myself, you know, sitting playing board games with the kids and I'm fiddling with my phone and I'm thinking about other stuff. So, you know, I was sort of talking to them down there about how 
I I sort of really need that, and I should have done it a long time ago. And and it's been been quite quite good for me. And I'm trying this month not to drink at all during September because generally speaking, I do drink too much um, and should drink less. And I don't think it's particularly good for me. Um, and in the grand scheme, it was quite hard talking about that stuff and thinking this is this equates to some of the other things that have been spoken about. But that's kind of the point that it's a an outlet for whatever you need it to be an outlet for. And I think you know if if you had a carefree life and you had no issues whatsoever, you wouldn't go, would you? It wouldn't, um, it wouldn't draw you in. But there was a massive spectrum of people suffering from various different things. And, you know, aside from the facilitators who spoke openly, I won't talk about any of the rest of it because that's the, the whole point of it is that you go there, you talk and it stays, everything that you, you discuss stays there. They, they were different in the sense that they were happy to be interviewed and happy to talk about what had, had gone on with them. But I think the, the kind of point that jumped out of it was that for anybody who feels like they need this or anybody who's been thinking about going and I guess reluctant to go or worried about going it's safe to say that absolutely everybody else who's gone to these meetings felt exactly the same at the start some people took ages to go some people tried couldn't quite get there but when they did the overriding feeling was I wish I'd gone to this ages ago months ago years ago because it has been going for a long time now Um, and the difference it's making I think is it's absolutely massive. And I couldn't help looking at it and thinking, you know, if if football at the top level is looking for things to fund and to support, then that has to be, that should be on the on the radar because it's not that they target football fan bases specifically, but you can certainly see the demographic in there. All five facilitators at Castleford are Leeds fans and it's, you know, the club they support is is totally immaterial. Right? It's not that the partisan aspect of it is just not not there, but they are football fans. And I think it's kind of reaching into that part of society in a way that has, has probably been quite difficult over the years. It always strikes me that, and I know this myself from from following Hearts and, and whatever else, football fan bases are probably the, the last place, the kind of last bastion of, you know, men being men and men being resistant to the idea of talking or being vulnerable or whatever else. But you kind of look around and you realise that everybody else is as vulnerable as you just in their own way. I think maybe that's part of the appeal with the, the people who are running these things, that they're not, they're not doctors, they're not, they're just normal sort of, local men who are who have been through these things and are now choosing to help out and do these things. It's, yeah, it's, it's not the it's not the like archetypal guardian reading yacht goodness, is it? You no, know, you're like, not sat on a just, you're not sat on a sofa listening to a man with certificates on his wall. It's, yeah. it's although they're they're welcome too. I must say that that's the sort of common perception, isn't it? Oh like yeah. this this is this is these men sat around talking, it's all it's all kind of it's above my, you know, my level kind of thing. And the, it's not like that at all at all. At no, all. absolutely. And they the the point one of the things that they do always try to stress is that medical and clinical support has its place, um, and it's not a case of if you go to AMC you don't need any of that. You know, it can be uh, it can fill the the gap between what are quite often big waiting times between seeking the help and actually receiving it. And Ricky, who you know is survivor of sexual abuse, he he said you know it, it was a, a um, qualified professional clinical psychologist, I think, who was able to help him talk about it, first of all. So that was the route he he went through. And he was very grateful for that. Because he was saying beforehand, he just could not have spoken to about anybody, whereas now he's comfortable enough. I don't know if comfortable is the right word. I can't imagine it feels like that. But he, he's willing to speak before every meeting about it. But he did say, I prefer AMC to the professional help because you do feel like you're dealing with real people, real people who have, if not the same problems as you or the same pressures as you, comparable ones are ones that you can relate to and likewise they can can relate to you and it was just it was kind of strange that given what the subject matter was and given you know what what the whole thing was about it actually felt like a completely 
pressure-free environment once you got into it. And the towns we've spoken about there, are, you know, Halifax, Castleford, I know there's one up in Pontefract, which is just kind of just up the road from Castleford. These are not, these are traditional working class areas where men have not necessarily been particularly encouraged to share feelings or show vulnerability in the past. So it's, I think I find it interesting where the heartland of this seems to be is, is in those towns. I think the guys who are involved in the voluntary side of it would love it if, uh, as Andy Wilson put it, there was a club that any man could get to whether they can drive or not. I mean, clearly there are parts of the country which are very, very difficult to reach, um, some that are, are pretty remote. But 95% of the country, you'd think if, if this spreads enough and, and grows in the way that it has been growing, there's no reason why why that shouldn't happen. And I think, I think you're right, but uh, it's quite reassuring to go to something like this and to think that it almost feels like we're starting to tip over from the point where the done thing was to talk about nothing to the stage where the done thing is absolutely to talk about talk about problems and, and talk about your issues almost to the extent where whereas in the past people might have thought it was odd to express this stuff it now becomes or seems a little bit more odd to not be willing to express it because there are these places where you can do it there are kind of opportunities for you to to get it off your chest and because it's non-judgmental and because you can go there that they you know quite a few of them like the fact weirdly that you it was easier talking to strangers than it was talking to your friends or your family um, and so on. And it is there to be used. And it does, it, it feels like we're going through a bit of a watershed moment with this. I certainly hope we are. And the peer-to-peer aspect of it shouldn't be underestimated either because you know what it's like being married with kids. It's very easy to lose touch with your mates, isn't it? I mean, like, we enjoy coming in here every week and just being in each other's company. Well, I hope we do anyway. Um, <laughs> you know, but just, you know, just having... Silence a- from me and Phil. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, just, just having a chat and, and just without wanting to say being blokes uh, around blokes, it just gives you a chance to be in a different em- environment, doesn't it? That's not exactly the same as your home life, but home life is dead busy. So even if you just want some like some male company to be around blokes, it's there for you, isn't it? Yeah, um, and people who I think you'll relate to and people who you'll understand. And you know, some of it's a really good laugh. Like when we got down there, Andy Wilson had what looked like a, a bit of a sort of plastic brace um, that had been fitted on his top top jaw. So it's kind of struggling to speak. Um, we were just having a joke with him. He constantly kept saying, I hope this isn't going to be broadcast rather than written about. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to understand a, a word that I'm saying. And George was winding the others up because he was so much younger than them and saying that, you know, they'll, they'll get over the hill. He's nice and nice and fresh at, at 22 and everything else. They're just a, a nice group of people who I think who I think thrive off the ability to support and help other people primarily because that was what they needed when they first came in. And, and they were all saying the fact that they're facilitators doesn't mean that they don't still need to use AMC in the way that they did back at the very start. You know, everybody goes through difficult weeks. Everybody has difficult times. But I think it's it's designed and organised in a way where it can become part of your weekly routine and actually become a really healthy part of your, your weekly routine. And for anybody who's thinking about it, I really, really would recommend it. As I say, I didn't know anywhere near enough about it um, when we went on the walk. The amount of money we raised for it was was so satisfying. I think it was about sixty thousand pounds in the end, something like that, which will will surely help. Um, so yeah, if you if you feel like sticking your head in, I really would. Yeah, full details at andysmanclub.co.uk. Gents, thanks for that. Good chat in light of no football. Um, been here to uh, to talk about, but we will we'll reconvene as and when. We're just going to play it by ear, basically, aren't we? From this point, see how it all unfolds. If we've got a game to talk about over the weekend, we'll talk about it. Um, if we need to talk about whether there is a game at the weekend, yeah. maybe we'll talk about it later in the week. We'll yeah. see. I guess just to t- clear it up as far as we can at this point, and we're talking it just past um, noon on Monday. The discussion about the Leeds, uh, the Man United Leeds game, is predominantly a discussion between 
Greater Manchester Police and Manchester United and the um, Supporter Advisory Group at Old Trafford as well. Um, Leeds are involved to the extent that obviously they're keeping abreast of it, but the decision will be made over there. I wouldn't be booking trains or cancelling trains or anything on the basis of this conversation, but I would say that as of the back end of last week and, and also over the weekend and this morning, the view from both ends, Man United and Leeds, has been that this game is certainly at risk. You know, there's a risk of this one being um, postponed again. Right then, we'll wrap it up there then, gents. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll be back speaking to you in due course. Take care. Bye-bye. The Phil Hay Show.